Welcome to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. Each week we examine the latest appeals decided by the Connecticut Supreme Court and the Connecticut Appellate Court. We focus on three areas of law, criminal law, personal injury law, and family law, each sponsored by a firm that concentrates in that type of law. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and get the newest episode each week and stay up to date on the latest case law. You can also visit our website, ConnecticutCaseLawPodcast.com, and register to get an alert every time a new episode is released. And now, let's get into the latest decisions after a quick word from our first sponsor. Next up, criminal law cases. If you know someone who needs the advice of a criminal defense or civil rights attorney, the lawyers at Ruan Attorneys should be the first firm you turn to. Our lawyers handle criminal cases in every courthouse in the state, from juvenile cases through arguing and winning in the Connecticut Supreme Court, and they welcome your referrals. Our trial team is led by attorney Jim Ruane, one of the few board-certified criminal trial specialists in the state. And Ruane Attorneys has the experience and relationships to handle any type of criminal case you throw at them. Our civil rights team is led by attorney Dan Lage, twice selected as an award-winning lawyer by the Connecticut Law Tribune. What's more, Ruane Attorneys is always available to consult with fellow attorneys on criminal law issues at any time. Put the power of over 500 five-star reviews to work for your criminal case referrals by trusting Ruane Attorneys with your referral. Visit RuaneAttorneys.com for more information or email our team at referral at RuaneAttorneys.com. Dan Lage back here once again on the Connecticut Case Law Podcast where we read the cases so you don't have to. It's the week of March 3rd, 2021. My docket has one case this week out of the Connecticut Supreme Court. But before I get into that, if you haven't already heard my interview with attorney Lisa Steele concerning the recently decided Gomes case from the Connecticut Supreme Court, go ahead and check that out. It's a really cool hour-long discussion where attorney Steele and I not only talk about the case itself, but she gives some very useful insight and practice pointers for trial lawyers in light of the Gomes decision. So let's get into our case this week from the Connecticut Supreme Court. State versus Ruiz Pacheco. Your citation is SC20206. Justice Ecker on the opinion, officially released July 9th, 2020, published March 3rd, 2021. Here are your facts. It's December 1st, 2012, and a fight occurs in the parking lot of a supermarket that sat adjacent to a nightclub in Danbury. The defendant and his brother had been at the nightclub that evening. A group of women, including the defendant's ex-girlfriend, Samantha Medina, were also at the nightclub, and the women met up with the victim, Tucker, in the parking lot of the supermarket after the nightclub had closed. The other victim, someone named Rodriguez, was also in the parking lot, but not associated with any of the people that we've discussed. A fight soon broke out between the defendant's group and the women, which resulted in Tucker and Rodriguez having to intervene to release Medina from a chokehold that the defendant had her in. When Tucker observed the defendant strike Medina, he rushed him. A brief melee ensued when the defendant's brother intervened in the fight, and Tucker was stabbed multiple times, at least once, by the defendant. Rodriguez had also received two or three stab wounds, at least one of which was inflicted by the defendant. At this point, Tucker left for the hospital and the altercation was momentarily halted and the defendant and his brother began to retreat. Rodriguez took this opportunity to speak his mind before turning back 
to his vehicle. When he began to walk away, the defendant's brother stabbed him in the back. This immediately causes him to fall down, which allowed the defendant to stab him in the chest. The defendant and his brother fled the scene. The entire altercation lasted approximately 70 seconds. The defendant was charged and convicted after a jury trial of, among other things, two counts of assault in the first degree as a principal, two counts of assault in the first degree as an accessory. Based on a joint physical assault involving two perpetrators, the defendant and his brother, and two victims, Tucker and Rodriguez. The state prosecutor also attempted to charge the defendant with attempted murder against Tucker, but he was found not guilty of that charge. The jury also found the defendant guilty of conspiracy to commit assault, but the court vacated this charge at sentencing. The defendant was sentenced to a total effective term of 22 years and five years of special parole. He appealed from the judgment claiming that his multiple assault convictions as to each victim violates his right to be free from double jeopardy. The appellate court reviewed his unpreserved constitutional claim I'm not going to get into what the golding factors are. We've discussed it plenty of times here. We've discussed it with Andy O'Shea on this podcast. If you want to research State versus Golding, which is a seminal preservation case, 213 Connecticut, 233. So anyway, the defendant's unpreserved issue on appeal, the appellate court determined that he could not prevail because his multiple punishments for assault as to each victim were premised not on a single criminal act, but on distinct repetitions of the same crime. Thus, his conviction was upheld on appeal. The Supreme Court granted certification to determine whether the appellate court properly concluded that the defendant's convictions for assault as principal and accessory, as well as for joint assault on the same victim, did not violate the double jeopardy clause of the U.S. Constitution. So on appeal, the defendant argues that the principal and accessory charges stem from one continuous course of conduct as to each victim, and therefore his two assault convictions for each victim violate double jeopardy against the imposition of multiple punishments for the same offense. In response, the state of Connecticut argued that the defendant's convictions arose from the repeated separate and distinct acts because he committed an assault on each victim as a principal stabbing each victim and as an an assault on each victim as an accessory by assisting his brother in the stabbing. Our standard of review, the double jeopardy claim is a question of law over which the Supreme Court exercises plenary review. Double jeopardy prohibits not only multiple trials for the same offense, but also multiple punishments for the same offense. The court here cites State v. Brown, 299 Connecticut, 640. In their opinion, Justice Ecker says that this court has established two different approaches to the double jeopardy analysis. When the defendant is charged with violation of two different statutes in a single criminal proceeding arising from a single underlying set of facts, the court has employed this two-part analysis. One, the charges must arise out of the same act or transaction. Two, it must be determined whether the charged crimes are the same offense. Multiple punishments are forbidden only if both of those conditions are met. Additionally, the court has also employed the Blockberger test to determine whether two statutes criminalize the same offense, which of course would place the defendant in double jeopardy. 
your language here is where the same act or transaction constitutes a violation of two distinct statutory provisions. The test to be applied to determine whether there are two offenses or only one is whether each provision requires proof of a fact that the other does not. Court cites State versus Porter, 328 Connecticut 648. Contrastingly, when the defendant is convicted of multiple violations of the same statutory provision, the question is whether the legislature intended to punish the individual acts separately or to punish only the course of action which they constitute. This analysis asks what unit of prosecution the legislature intended as the punishable act under the statute. This unit of prosecution test involves an effort to determine the legislature's intent as to whether and how a course of prohibited conduct can be separated into parts, each of which itself constitutes a completed offense. In some situations, the legislature intended to punish the continuous courses of conduct as a single unit of prosecution. And in other instances, the legislature intended to punish separately each discrete act that constitutes a completed offense. The analysis in this case is unique in that with respect to both victims, the defendant was convicted of assault as a principal under Connecticut General Statute 53-59A1, but also as an accessory under that same statute and the corresponding accessory statute 53A-8. Therefore, the Supreme Court's job here is to determine whether a conviction of a crime as to a principal offender is a conviction under the same statute or under a different statute as a conviction of that same crime as an accessory. Statute 53A-8 subsection A provides that, quote, a person acting with the mental state required for the commission of an offense who solicits, requests, commands, importunes, or intentionally aids another person who engage in conduct, which constitutes an offense, shall be criminally liable for such conduct and may be prosecuted and punished as if he were the principal offender, unquote. This statute deems the accessory to be the same as the principal for the purposes of criminal liability and punishment. Thus, although there are separate and distinct provisions in our criminal statutes defining accessory liability, there is no such crime as being an accessory. And the statute merely provides an alternate means by which a substantive crime can be committed. The court cites state versus Montañez, 277 Connecticut, 735. In this way, our legislature has abandoned the common law criminology for, or terminology, I'm sorry, for accessory liability and has adopted the modern approach such that a person is legally accountable for the conduct of another when he is an accomplice of the other person for the commission of the crime, such that there is no difference in being labeled an accessory or principle for the purposes of determining criminal responsibility. When conducting a double jeopardy analysis, the Supreme Court will typically look to the elements of the principal offense underlying the accessory charge, not to the elements of accessory liability. Because the conviction as an accessory is the same as a conviction as a principal, the Supreme Court finds that the defendant was convicted and punished 
for multiple violations of the same statutory provision, namely assault in the first degree. However, to determine whether these multiple convictions violate double jeopardy, the court must ascertain the unit of prosecution that the legislature intended to punish under that statute. This is because the role of the constitutional guarantee against double jeopardy is limited to ensuring that the court does not exceed its legislative authorization by imposing multiple punishments for the same offense. The issue is one of statutory construction over which the Supreme Court has plenary review. When construing a statute, the court will seek to determine the meaning of the statute language as applied to the facts in the case. Connecticut General Statute Section 1-2Z directs the court to consider, one, the text of the statute itself and its relationship to the others, and after this consideration, two, if the meaning of the text is unambiguous and does not yield absurd or unworkable results, extra textual evidence of the meaning of the statute will not be considered. Section 53A-59A1 provides, quote, A person is guilty of assault in the first degree when, with intent to cause serious physical injury to another person, he causes such injury to such person or to a third person by means of a deadly weapon or a dangerous instrument, unquote. A separate assault occurs with respect to each victim who suffers a serious physical injury because society has an interest in protecting each individual. And here, the defendant's double jeopardy claim relates to his conviction of two assaults as to each victim. In State v. Nixon, 92 Connecticut Appellate 586, this court finds instruction from the appellate court in analyzing the unit of prosecution under 53A-60. There, the court found that a continuous course of conduct Involving, involving multiple stabbings of a single victim forms a single unit of prosecution. It further found that the statute was ambiguous in that it did not specify whether the legislature intended to punish every injury inflicted as a separate crime. Therefore, the court rejected the state's argument that every stab wound inflicted by a defendant always constitutes a separate assault reasoning that to hold a defendant guilty of multiple separate blows during one fight doesn't comport with the statute or with the history of prosecution of similar offenses. So similar to that statute, 53A-50A1 indicates, indicates the unit of prosecution intended by the legislature in other statutes, such as 53A-3, subsection 3, and subsection 4, the legislature defines physical injury as, quote, impairment of physical condition or pain, unquote, and serious physical injury as, quote, physical injury which creates a substantial risk of death or which causes serious disfigurement, unquote. Notably, the legislature declined to use either the singular, such as a physical injury or an impairment, or even the plural, such as physical injuries or impairments of physical condition. In the absence of such limiting language for which the legislature is well aware of their ability to choose broader or limiting terms, this court cannot conclude that the statute unambiguously defines the unit of prosecution for assault in the first degree. 
Moreover, the legislative legislative history does not resolve this ambiguity as it reflects only that the purpose of the assault statute was to grade the seriousness of the offense, not on the seriousness of the injuries inflicted. In the absence of clear legislative intent, the question of the unit of prosecution must be resolved in favor of the rule of lenity. For that, the court cites Bell v. United States, 349 U.S. 81, where the Supreme Court of the United States explained that when Congress has the will, it has no difficulty in expressing it. When Congress leaves to the judiciary the task of imputing to Congress an undeclared will, the ambiguity should be resolved in favor of lenity. Following Bell, this court has adopted the rule of lenity to avoid turning a single transaction into multiple offenses when the statutes and legislative history are, un- are ambiguous. The courts of our sister states have consistently applied the same rule in cases regarding the unit of prosecution under the double jeopardy clause. However, the court cannot end its analysis there because not every criminal activity inflicting repetitive harm directed against a single victim on the same occasion involves a continuous course of conduct. Case law interpreting continuity with respect to double jeopardy purposes looks to one, whether the defendant's act took place at different times or locations, two, whether the defendant was motivated by different criminal intents, and three, whether the acts were interrupted by intervening circumstances. Looking towards State v. Brown, the court cites that that case had an attempted robbery where it became a complete transaction when the attempt failed and the victim escaped. Court also looks back to Nixon. The defendant twice stabbed the same victim at the same place and during the same time period with the same instrument, with the same common intent to inflict physical injury during one continuous uninterrupted assault. Courts in other jurisdictions rely on similar factors. Other courts commonly consider, as does this court, the length of time between the acts, the location of the acts or victims, evidence of separately formed criminal intents, or some combination of them all. So accordingly, because the relevant statute does not clearly authorize the court to treat each separate act as a separate crime, it must apply the rule of lenity to resolve any doubt against turning a single transaction into multiple offenses. The court's going to use the aforementioned factors to determine whether, on this record, the defendant engaged in distinct courses of conduct, and therefore, separately punishable assaults as to each victim. That is our global legal issue. We haven't even gotten to the claims yet. So there's where the Supreme Court is so far. The rule of lenity has been applied. They're going to use this record to determine whether or not we have distinct courses of conduct. Let's go to our first claim. First, the court considered whether the conviction punishment for two counts of assault in the first degree as to Tucker violated the double jeopardy clause. The record shows that there was a single uninterrupted fight in which the defendant and his brother both stabbed Tucker. There is no evidence of a break in the fight, nor any other intervening event, which would have allowed the defendant an opportunity to reconsider his actions and formulate an intent to commit an additional assault. Without evidence to meaningfully distinguish the acts, such as 
They are susceptible to separation into parts, each of which constitutes a completed offense. The court must find that the defendant's assaultive acts against Tucker were part of the same continuing course of conduct. For this reason, the imposition of multiple punishments for the assault on Tucker violated the double jeopardy clause. Now, the state's argument that the defendant committed two distinct assaults against Tucker because he intentionally stabbed him, and by doing so, also intentionally aided his brother in stabbing Tucker, misses the point, says the Supreme Court. Double jeopardy is triggered because the defendant has been convicted twice of committing the same crime on the same victim for the same conduct. The conduct that is alleged, the intentional aiding, is the very same conduct that constitutes the defendant's commission of the crime of an assault as a principle. The actus reus underlying both the defendant's assault convictions as to Tucker is one and the same. Therefore, because the double jeopardy clause prohibits the imposition of multiple punishments for the same offense, those two convictions based upon the same actus reus violate double jeopardy. So the court here reversed the judgment of the appellate court insofar as it affirmed the defendant's conviction of assault in the first degree as an accessory with respect to Tucker. Now, the second claim as to Rodriguez, he received five stab wounds. Two or three of those occurred in rapid succession following his intervention in the fight between the defendant and Medina. The defendant and his brother then walked away and were in a separate area of the parking lot from Rodriguez. No blows were exchanged during this interlude and the break provided an opportunity for the defendant to reconsider his actions and formulate a distinct criminal intent. When the fight resumed after Rodriguez approached the defendant and his brother a second time, then turned to walk away, the defendant's brother stabbed Rodriguez in the back and the defendant stabbed him in the chest after Rodriguez fell to the ground unable to move. That final stabbing was distinct as the court reasons in several ways from the series that occurred before the break in time. The location of the altercation had changed, and although it was still close, it was distinct. Additionally, sufficient amounts of time had elapsed, approximately 30 seconds or so, such that the defendant was able to form a second and distinct criminal intent. This intent exemplified by his statement that the stab was for, quote, hitting his brother, unquote. Although the two criminal acts involving Rodriguez plainly arose out of the same general altercation and the separation in time and location were not great, the distinct break in the fighting allowed the defendant to reconsider his actions. His clear criminal intent behind the final stabbing sufficiently established two separate courses of assaultive conduct. Furthermore, the defendant's reliance upon State versus Nixon as controlling the outcome lacks merit. In Nixon, the defendant stabbed the victim twice in rapid succession without any intervention or break in his attack. It contrasts with this case where the defendant's stabbings are distinguished by the break in the fight, the movement from one place to another, and the defendant's own articulation of a new intent. The court is also unconvinced by the defendant's argument that his conviction as a principal categorically precludes his conviction as an accessory for the same crime. While there is no such crime as being an accessory, that does not mean that the defendant can never be convicted of the same substantive crime 
as both a principal and accessory. Multiple convictions of the same offense are permissible under the double jeopardy clause as long as each conviction is based upon distinct acts or transactions that constitute separately completed units of prosecution under the statute in question. It follows that the defendant failed to establish his convictions of assault in the first degree with respect to Rodriguez, violate the double jeopardy clause. The appellate court was affirmed on that judgment. In conclusion, the decision was reversed in part and upheld in part. The defendant's assault against Tucker did not constitute a distinct criminal intent, unlike his assault on Rodriguez, which did. Short and sweet, but another one in the books. Once again, Dan Lage here on the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. I'll be back next week with some new stuff from the appellate court and the Supreme Court on habeas and criminal law here in the state of Connecticut. Until then, thanks for tuning in. See you next time. Next up, injury law cases. If you know someone who has been injured, Connecticut Trial Firm can help. Our lawyers handle car accidents, malpractice, dog bite, and premises liability cases across the state of Connecticut. Our lawyers have achieved multi-million dollar verdicts and settlements. Our trial team has the experience and the resources to make a difference. Connecticut trial firm attorneys are always available to consult with fellow attorneys on injury law issues at any time. Put the power of over 124 five-star reviews to work for your personal injury referrals by trusting the team at Connecticut trial firm. Visit cttrialfirm.com for more information or call us 24-7 at 860-471-8333. Hi, it's Connecticut personal injury attorney Ryan McKean here from Connecticut Trial Firm. And the bad news is this week, there were no Connecticut tort law decisions rendered by either the Connecticut Supreme or Appellate Court. The good news is, I'm giving away a copy of my new Connecticut tort law book, which covers every Supreme and Appellate Court tort law decision from 2017 through June of 2020. And you can get that by going to my website, cttrialfirm.com slash Connecticut hyphen tort hyphen law. Again, that's cttrialfirm.com slash Connecticut hyphen tort hyphen law. I'll be giving away one copy of my book to a lucky listener. First come, first serve. Uh, can't wait to send it to you. Hope you have a great week. Next up, family law cases. If you know someone who needs the advice of a lawyer who focuses exclusively on divorce and other family matters, Rich Rockland is your guy. Rich handles cases all across the state of Connecticut, including the state appellate court, and welcomes your referrals. Rich will personally handle the case and will be attentive to all your clients' needs. Family litigation is stressful, and you don't need your referral stress being taken out on you. Rich's goal is to counsel his clients through a family law case with an eye towards resolving the issue in a manner that protects their interests while minimizing their stress and yours. If you would like to discuss a referral of a family law matter, please contact us at 860-357-9158. We have virtual consults available and in-person consults in West Hartford Center and welcome the call from fellow attorneys. Hey, it's Rich Rockland again. 
Um, this is the case, appellate court case, by Judge Alvord Ricketts v. Ricketts. I will note that I am presently counsel to um, uh, Janelle Millett, formerly Ricketts, uh, in post-judgment litigation. I was not part of this appeal. This case considers the immediate appealability of a denial of a request to transfer issues regarding visitation rights to a special court and whether such an order violates one's constitutionally or statutorily held rights. Um, the marriage between the plaintiff, uh, Robert Ricketts, who's an attorney in a proceeding pro se, and the defendant, uh, Dr. Janelle Ricketts, was dissolved in 2018. In June of 2019, Judge Diana rendered the judgment dissolving the party's marriage, which incorporated their separation agreement and the parenting plan for the two marting minor children. Pursuant to this judgment, the parties agreed that they would share joint legal custody, but the children would preside primarily with the plaintiff, father. The judgment further specified that the regional family trial docket would retain jurisdiction over the custody and parenting issues that may arise and require adjudication. On January 9, 2020, the defendant filed a motion for contempt, alleging that she had been prevented from picking up the children from school at their scheduled parent time. She filed a motion for the appointment of a guardian ad litem. Between January 10, 2020 and August 11, 2020, the plaintiff filed several applications for emergency ex-party orders of custody and emergency motions for temporary injunction. He argued that the defendant was interfering with the children's education and sought orders limiting her access to the children's educational records and limiting her visitation rights. These requests were denied. On September 14, 2020, the plaintiff filed a motion to transfer adjudication for the appointment of a jail to the regional family trial docket. This request was denied, and the trial court found that the regional family trial docket was not accepting this case. The trial court appointed a GAL chosen by agreement of the parties and continued the matter to October 8, 2020 for the court to assess duties and fees for the GAL. On September 28, 2020, the plaintiff, Robert Ricketts, who's an attorney proceeding pro se, filed an appeal challenging the orders of the trial court when the appeal was filed. No final order had entered on the defendant's January 9, 2020 motion for contempt or on the plaintiff's motions that sought to modify the defendant's visitation. Mr. Ricketts then appealed from the September 12, 2020 orders of the trial court. On November 13, 2020, the appellate court ordered sua sponte that the parties file memorandum giving reasons why this appeal should be dismissed for lack of an appealable judgment. On December 16, 2020, the appellate court dismissed the plaintiff's appeal, and this opinion elucidates the court's conclusion that it does not have jurisdiction to consider the propriety of these post-judgment orders. The parties filed memoranda giving reasons why this appeal should not be dismissed for lack of an appealable judgment. The court then looked at General Statutes 51-197A and 52-263 in Practice Book 611, um, which, which all note that this appellate court is restricted to appeals from judgments that are final. Appellate courts have a duty to dismiss, even, their own, even on their own initiative, any appeal that they lack jurisdiction to hear. In the gray area between judgments that are final and others that are interlocutory, our Supreme Court has adopted the, the test um, known as the Curcio test. Um, uh, any otherwise, um, and, and these, these apply in both civil and criminal proceedings, any otherwise interlocutory order is appealable in two circumstances, where the order action terminates a separate and distinct proceeding, or where the order or actions so concludes the rights of the parties that further proceedings cannot affect them. Even if a present matter arises post-judgment, this will not affect the analysis. The final judgment rule still applies. First, considering the plaintiff's claim regarding the immediate appealability of a denial of his motion to transfer a case to the regional family trial docket, this court has held that neither prong of cursio is satisfied when an appellant seeks to challenge an order transferring a case from one judicial district to another was rendered in the course of continuing litigation, 
It did not terminate a separate and distinct proceeding and did not in and of itself conclude any recognized right of the parties. The same is true of an order transferring a case to a special session of the Superior Court. Here, the order denying plaintiff's motion to transfer was entered in the course of continuing post-judgment proceedings on motions that remain pending before the trial court. The order did not terminate any proceeding and does not satisfy the first prong of cursia. Moreover, the second cursio prong requires the parties to establish that the trial court's order threatens the preservation of a right already secured to them, and then that right will be irretrievably lost and the parties irreparably harm unless they may immediately appeal. Here, the plaintiffs claim right to have the matter transferred to the regional family trial docket arises from the agreement incorporated into the decree dissolving the parents' marriage. And, well, and it is well established that a separation agreement incorporated into the dissolution decree must be regarded as a contract and construed in accordance with the principles of governing contracts. The right the plaintiff seeks to vindicate, therefore, is neither statutory nor constitutional, and thus the second prong of cursio is not satisfied, and such order is not immediately appealable. As for the plaintiff's challenge to the trial court's ruling that the plaintiff agreed on the appointment of a jail, this order is also, this order is also interlocutory, and therefore not immediately appealable under cursio. In Kennedy v. Kennedy, the court noted, the trial court appointed separate counsel for each minor child. The father appealed, and this appellate court determined that such appointments or a stop along the road to the final judgment. The father failed to explain why his objection should not be vindicated on appeal from final judgment, and this court held that the issue was not immediately appealable under Curcio. Therefore, the court concluded, there was no reason to reach a different conclusion here. The appointment of the GL was to investigate facts in order to make recommendations to the court concerning the children's best interest. This is a step towards a final judgment. Accordingly, because none of the interlocutory orders at issue here are immediately appealable under Curcio, the court lacked jurisdiction to reach the merits at this time. In conclusion, the court held that it will lack jurisdiction over orders which are interlocutory in nature, involves a request for transfer to a special court, and where such an order will not affect the statutory or constitutionally held right. Thanks for listening to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get alerted every time a new episode is released. And to give us a five-star rating, you can also watch this podcast on our YouTube channel each week if you prefer to watch in the comfort of your office or stream it on ConnecticutCaseLawPodcast.com. The Connecticut Case Law Podcast is sponsored by Ruane Attorneys at Law, the Connecticut Trial Firm, and Rich Rockland Law. Attorney Jay Ruane, Connecticut Jurist Number 415988, is responsible for the content of this advertisement. See you next week.